Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri-term medical plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hey, before we get the show started, I wanted to let you know we are giving away a bunch of brand new black magic gear. Yeah, cameras, switchers, DaVinci Resolve licenses, a bunch of awesome stuff. So stay tuned to learn how you can enter to win free gear from Black Magic, and we're going to tell you all about it later on in this episode. Now cue the music. Hey everyone, welcome to Just Shoot It, a podcast about filmmaking, screenwriting, and directing. This episode is brought to you by patrons Noah Alexander and Nathan Bailey. I'm Warren Kaplan. And I'm Matt Enloe. Today we've got Numa Perrier on the show. She's the filmmaker behind the Netflix-released film Jezebel, but she's also got a really storied and really interesting history in online video and kind of the forefront of web series. So we dig in deep on her transition from being a DIY do-it-yourself internet filmmaker who've built her own audience and found a ton of success there, leveraged that into selling a show to HBO, and then ultimately making kind of all at the same time her breakthrough independent film, Jezebel. And she also was, you know, discovered by Ava DuVernay and asked to direct an episode of Queen Sugar. She's done all sorts of awesome things. And she was just... She is the epitome of just shooting it. Yeah. She's exactly the, like, the, she is evidence that just shooting it is the thing to do. Yeah. Talk about someone that does not stop shooting things and does not stop making things no matter what happens. And then you'll be talking about Numa. This is a spoiler, but she was in the process of shooting, oftentimes acting in, directing, and show running multiple web series all at the same time. They had a small window where they could take a quick break. And instead of like catching her breath, she was like, what if I fly myself and a crew out to Las Vegas and shoot an indie feature instead? Yeah, in like two weeks. In two weeks. Yeah. That gets into South by Southwest and then on to Netflix. Those were the days... Do you feel like you still have it in you, Matt, to just like go do something crazy like that? Especially where it it feels like you can't because of the quarantine. That's all I'm thinking about. Well, would you have done it before the quarantine? Yeah. I mean, look, I made a bunch of web series before one clicked. I just shot a indie feature in my apartment this year. Yeah, I guess you would. I probably would. I guess it's just me that's the lazy one. Uh, no, it's not that you're lazy. It's that you're motivated towards different things. We've got a long, great conversation with Numa, so we'll keep our catch up quick. But I do, I think it's worth talking about. I've been really trying to put my producer hat on and figure out what my next project is because I'm finishing up a screenplay that I really love. And, you know, I'm going to take it around, but it's time to start writing the next thing so that I'm just kind of keeping this momentum going. And I really had to reckon with the reality that just because you have a good idea for a movie, even a great idea for a movie, that's just the baseline for where you start. And that doesn't mean that it's the idea you should make next. 
So thinking through putting that producer hat on and figuring out, is there an audience for this movie? Is there a budget for this movie? Are people making these types of movies? Like you, it would be foolhardy for me to write a giant studio comedy, for instance, that's not based off of IP when they're not really making big studio comedies right now. Yeah. I mean, unless... Like, there's that movie Eurovision that just came out on Netflix. Would you mm-hmm. call that a big studio comedy? I would call that a big studio comedy that's starring Will Ferrell. So it was developed, I'm assuming, by his company, mm-hmm. right? And then also has a huge international appeal. So Eurovision only works because it spans a global audience. And so it makes sense for Netflix. You can't make... Like, if I wrote a domestic... Like, something where it doesn't travel and doesn't have music and doesn't have international appeal... And also is going to cost $30 million. There's just not a world where people make those movies right now. And I can wish that. I want that to be the case. I want people to make those movies. But they're not right now. And until I am so successful that people are falling all over themselves to make the next Mad Enlo movie, I should write a movie that either I can make myself or that's going to attract cast that is also cheap enough that we're going to really recoup our money there's all that kind of those other pieces of the equation that you really have to think about and it just i thought to myself a great idea is just the bare minimum for sure i honestly can't even imagine myself like just writing something and trying to sell it anymore like i can't imagine a version where i'm not writing something then shooting pieces of it or doing some previs or getting an actor talent like in, excited about a certain thing like that whole here's a script give it to my manager see if you can sell it is like even with great proofs of concept and even maybe with an attachment the fact of the matter is if disney makes 10 movies a year and they're all sequels or reboots of ip then disney's not making that new movie so it, it has to be a netflix movie then Right. Okay. Well, then let's go ahead and take a look at what does Netflix need to, in order to make a movie now. International appeal is a big part of that, right? Yeah. I mean, I guess to me, like the proof of concept part is part of it is like trying to get it sold. But the other part of it is like answering that question that you're asking, like, is there an audience for this? Like, can I get people super excited about this? I guess what I'm saying is, is that even if people are super excited about it, that doesn't mean that there's a company out there making the type of movies that you're making. So the question to me is not, is it good enough to get people excited? And maybe that's, you need to prove a concept to show that maybe you just need a great screenplay. I'm saying knowing who the buyers are and what they're buying is kind of the first step. And then you kind of have to reverse engineer to like figure out a movie that you're still passionate about and is still great and that you're still going to be committed to writing and then shooting the proof of concept for and also putting together the pitch deck and then pulling favors to get introduced to, uh, you know, an up and coming movie star. You still have to do all that stuff, but you have to know that the hot dog stand out there that's selling hot dogs is still selling hot dogs. Does that make sense? It does, but I guess that's only if you're like don't make hot dogs, fifty million dollar movie or something. But if you want to make like a Blue Ruin, you know, a Baba Duke, like anything like that, if you want to make Under Her Skin, like you can still kind of go make those movies without having Disney, who makes ten movies, pay for without it. a doubt, without a doubt. But then you have to figure out, okay, if that's the goal, if that's the plan, then you have to figure out a way to write something that talent is going to be excited by, or that is talent proof 
that that the the conceit is so exciting and interesting that it kind of reinvents itself or leans into a genre all of those kind of different elements i think are you know it's something that our audience knows and that we always know but i think whenever you're starting a new project really you know putting whatever ideas you're thinking about through the ringer of like what is it really going to take to get this movie made and does the idea fit the criteria that I'm looking at right now are, are the most important questions basically. Right. And I guess I'm saying I'm looking at the marketplace and what I'm seeing where I'm seeing breakout films come from are less people that aimed for what people are buying and more people that are selling like tone and approach much more than a perfectly structured comedy script, you know, um, or even like a great sci-fi idea. I'm seeing people, get excited about like, oh, look at that, you know, this is a satire. It's funny and it's sci-fi and it's like super sad, you know, and it's hard to do that, capture that in a final draft document. But if I shoot a few scenes, you know, I think you would get it. Like, I guess I'm just, I hear what you're saying. I'm saying what you're saying is totally, I agree with, like you shouldn't write a $50 million studio comedy right now and expect to sell it. But I'm saying I can't even imagine any script selling without me showing people what it will look and feel like. I do feel like a lot of originality is being rewarded and a lot of like unique approaches and voices and like doing things in ways that people haven't done before. And when you're pitching a movie in a way that hasn't been done before, no one is going to buy it off the script, you know, unless you're famous or you have someone attached. Yeah. It's very big. I think we're talking about sales approach right like what you what you tool up with what what you have in your arsenal to sell with versus who you're selling to and i'm saying if there aren't any hot dog stands on your block don't go buy a bunch of don't make a bunch of hot dogs but i do think that something like you know numa talks about this a lot about her show that she got a deal with hbo on and you know we talk about high maintenance and all these other shows broad city and i know those those references are kind of dated by now but the idea that those shows existed and created stars pretty much out of nowhere. Sure, absolutely. Is because those people showed something that had never been seen before. And I, I right. think But I'm not saying I'm not saying don't do that. Yeah, I'm not saying don't make the very best, most unique, incredible hot dog of all time. Yeah. I guess the part where we agree is do not write a mid range studio comedy right now. <laughs> yeah but you can write that idea and that voice is flourishing right now on netflix or Mm, something like that on tv right yeah so that that's what i'm saying you know just because i want to write the pilot instead of writing the feature that's easy right yeah it's shorter too well cool well let's i'm excited to to see what you got next but before we start talking to Numa, uh, I just want to remind people that we do have a Patreon page. It's patreon.com slash justshootitpod. It's a place where you can go and throw us a couple bucks a month if you're interested in helping us out. If you feel like you're getting anything useful out of this podcast, and it's great. If you give us $10 even once, you will get a Just Shoot It hat mailed to your house. Uh, speaking of mailing things to people's houses, I think listeners at home, if you are a patron and you elected to have a sticker sent to you and you didn't get a hat, you should probably have the sticker by now. So uh, post it on Instagram. Let us know. I want to see it on the laptop or a computer case or camera case. Where else do people put stickers? A car, maybe? If you're not on, worried like about their shoulder. Value. 
Yeah, under, under the mom tattoo. Mm-hmm. On a skateboard deck, if you're 15. Oh yeah, on your scooter. 1995. But yeah, you know, show us those stickers. I think we're really excited to see them. A water bottle, actually. I put mine on a water bottle, and it was really nice. Not like a disposable one, like a Nalgene bottle. And we are not responsible for any slowdowns in the U.S. Postal Service uh, <laughs> currently. So if you're interested in checking that out, go to patreon.com slash pod. And now here's our interview with Numa. Hey folks, we're interrupting this incredible episode of the podcast to tell you about a new sponsor that we're working with, Front Row Insurance Brokers. One of the challenges of being a filmmaker is that there's a lot of risks that we take and we really just want to focus on making good stuff. So what if there was a company that could take those risks, manage them for us while we are being artists? That's right. Front Row Insurance Brokers arranges film production insurance to cover the risks associated with your production. They cover features, TV shows, documentaries, commercials, music videos, webisodes, basically anything you can watch on big media or phone-sized screens. Yeah, Front Row will help you focus on your artistic vision by transferring all the risks to them and minimizing your production hazards. And they cover any budget from $2,000 all the way up to $200 million. There's nothing that's too small or too big. If you are shooting in Canada, use coupon code JUSTSHOOTIT50 off for 50 bucks off your film production insurance. That's promo code JUSTSHOOTIT50 off to save 50 bucks. And if you're shooting in the U.S., that same code can be redeemed offline by mentioning it to a broker, by email, or over the phone. It's like a cool password if you're in the U.S. That's just shoot it 50 off. Check him out. Let us know how it goes. We know you founded a streaming platform and you created shows and directed things. And, you know, you worked with Issa Rae there and Lena Waithe and some other awesome people. But it seems to me like the thing that set you on course to where you are today over the past couple of years was probably your feature, Jezebel, that premiered at South By in 2019. Would you say that's true? Yeah, I think that's pretty accurate. Although, you know, my years and what I did at Black and Sexy TV set me up to do Jezebel. And a lot of that fan base were really eager to see what I would do in the feature space. So they really supported the film and helped uh, a lot of the buzz for that film grow. So um, definitely not to be discounted. But as far as having a real signature for people to know what I'm about as a filmmaker and where my sensibilities lie more expansively, uh, definitely my feature has done that and opened up so many doors because of that. I have a follow-up question, actually, because I think this is something really interesting that, you know, I think when people all were making web series, there was like a real moment in time where like web series felt like, oh, this is maybe the future, right? We get to own our own content, you know, tear down the gatekeepers, create an incredible calling card and build an audience and then take that audience with you into your future. Having done web series myself, I feel like I've brought some of the viewers along with me, but not, it doesn't sound like to anywhere near the same success that you have. What, What did you do to kind of build that audience and then take them with you to your film? Well, I really care about the community that cared about the work that I was doing. So I I remained very engaged with them. I would hop on before our premieres and our finales and say hi to the fans, really engage in the comment section with them. And it was not just one web series, it was over a dozen. So a lot of our audience were seeing me over the years, (laughs) you know, and... um, And you acted in... 
and I and I and it doesn't hurt (laughs) to be an actor and star in one of the series because you get a whole fan base off of that and recognizability from people seeing you every week. So did a couple of seasons of a series, but all of the other series I worked on, um, I may have guest starred now and then, but I was directing, producing, show running. I was behind the scenes. But the couple, the web series I did star in, did have a lot of fans. Even to this day, there's still a group of fans from that really loved that show. So those things help. Um, you know, definitely being an on-camera talent always helps. Sure. <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah. They see your face. They they become much more invested in you because they're getting more from you in a, a recognizable way. So yeah, but also I maintained it, you know. Yeah, but you know, I, I, I cared. Better. All right, Numa, I'll star in your next movie. <laughs> I'll do it. Me too. <laughs> I mean that it's it's a real it's a real thing, and you notice you notice the difference from filmmakers that put themselves in their work. They have that extra fact, that extra dimension, that extra factor of people staying close to them. Yeah, I wonder if like part of that Alfred Hitchcock presents is a reason that he's like one of the only directors we know from that era is because, you know, it wasn't like he was an actor per se. I mean, I think he did a little acting, but, but he, he was, was a persona for movies. sure. Yeah. And I feel yeah, like Spike yeah. Lee took from that. I don't know if sure. he was inspired by that. I don't know if he's ever talked about that, but, you know, Spike Lee branded himself in that yeah. way. Do you remember the trailer for She's Gotta Have It? I don't. <laughs> it's incredible. It's so is it it's him talking about the movie. He is on the street with a bunch of tube socks and it's, it's it's the only bit that's in color. He's like, "Hey, I'm Spike Lee. I got this new movie. I'm out here hustling, selling tube socks, but you got to watch this movie. She's got to have it. It's my new movie. It's going to be incredible." Just like as charismatic. It, you know, he's a 20-year-old dude. It's so good. And then, you know, they that's cut the to, trailer. Uh, that's the trailer. <laughs> And then they have some footage and then they come back and he's like, you got to go see this movie or I'm going to be out here. And it is so good. We will put uh, it in the show notes. Well, it, he's brilliant. He's a yeah. brilliant oh, filmmaker man. and a brilliant marketer in that way, you know, yeah. and, you know, brilliant in advertising himself and advertising his work. And I think that, um, you know, a lot of us can take a page from that. It's not for everybody, but it it works, you know, it works if it's for you. Can we, just to rewind even a little bit more, Black and Sexy TV, This you created it, and it was, how long were the episodes? Like, was it kind of like a Quibi-style network? Well, I created it with a, a team of filmmakers, like-minded filmmakers, and we started off with skits that were very short, maybe five minutes long, and then we we did that for a little while, maybe a few months, and then we moved into serialized content, but still pretty short form. So uh, episodes were always less than 10 minutes at first, but the audience became very impatient with that and growing with that. So we started lengthening and everything was self-funded. So, um, you know, the longer the episodes get, the more budget <laughs> you need because sure. um, you have more need more days to do it. And you start just expanding the world. So then we went up to like 15 minute episodes. And finally, we got to making full, you know, we had real half hour shows, you know, you know, 25 minute episodes. And we did feature films and we just grew. But we started very short form and uh, just brick by brick built it to something bigger. And how are you guys paying for everything? So everything um, was self-funded. 
And in the beginning, <laughs> it was like, just very, very scrappy. Like hmm? Did you have like day jobs? Um, different. Everyone was hustling different jobs, <laughs> you know. So like, I would pick up a wardrobe styling gig or acting gig here, and then um, everyone was doing different things just to make it go right. But in the beginning, the budgets were really, really you know, we would spend maybe $200 on an episode just to buy lunch and maybe rent one lens and borrow a camera and everything was natural lighting. We started that way. And then uh, we did crowdfunding and then we started charging for the season finales of our shows. So mm, we would, you know, good. really yeah, reel yeah. them in and then make them go pay for the season finale. And they were more than happy to. Um, and we did crowdfunding and then we moved off of YouTube and started our own pay site. So we became an official streamer, you know, like Netflix, um, seven bucks a month. and we brought everyone with us, you know, or a good portion. But that was over years of slowly building that up and gaining the trust of our audience and getting them addicted to the storylines and the characters and everything. So it took time, but it remained um, very independent because we were funded by our own community. So the show, The Couple, you said that when you got a deal at HBO with that? We did. So kind of how you were saying about the web series were in the early days, like the early days of YouTube, um, it was a space where everyone was trying out stuff and you didn't have to wait and get a yes from someone else or go pitch your project or anything. You could just make your own thing and go. Um, but a lot of executives got savvy about that and started looking on YouTube to find new talent, find new shows, but also to say, what's going on here? You know, like, how can we slow this down? Because this could overtake what, possibly what we're doing. Um, and an executive came through and watched all the episodes of the couple and reached out to us and brought us in for a development deal and completely shelved the project. <laughs> was it kind of like what they did with High Maintenance, where they found a web show they really loved and they wanted to adapt it to TV? Yeah. And the question, it, it was like that. And the, the question of it was, how do you redo the format we had on YouTube for TV? And we didn't really feel like it had to be redone. But on TV, they want you to expand your worlds. Um, and I think that that's kind of how it ended up getting shelved because the, sh the show, The Couple, was really just about a couple in an apartment. <laughs> and we very rarely went out of that outside of that apartment. And you very rarely saw other people in our lives. It was just about the two people. And that was the beauty of the show. And to take it and make it, you know, something else was just making it something else. So I think um, just creatively, we struggled with figuring that out. But, you know, to this day, the executives are like, we love it. We just don't know what to do with, right. with it, right. you know. So, you know, there'll be other things that I do with HBO. Um, but that show just kind of went to <laughs> TV heaven for sure. now or purgatory. <laughs> But there's a lot of, you can still find episodes of it on, the archives of it are still on YouTube or Black and Sexy TV, um, if you want to check it out. Oh, it's cool. very fun. Is it a, it's a drama? <laughs> Dramatic series? 
it's a comedy. So it's about a couple who've just recently moved in together and it's um, how they deal with how different it is now that they're living together, how much they get on each other's nerves. And, you know, it's a very, mon- it's just about the mundane things of life, everyday, everyday life with this couple. Yeah. I'm trying to think of a TV show that is basically two people in a house. I know there's like The Affair. There's some shows that are very contained. The affair is yeah. huge. They have so many characters. Yeah, this was I just me <laughs> and this and my co-star Desmond Faison. It was just the two of us. And every now and then we do an episode where like his mom came to town. So there'd be three people, you know, right. and we were that's right, how we right, were able right. to make these, you know, very low budget. We shot everything in my apartment. You know, I had great lighting. So we didn't we just basically were just using reflectors and stuff and it was great. It felt so real. People thought we were a real couple and we would lead them on and make them think that we were. Sometimes we would just never say if we were or weren't, but they really thought we were a real couple. Um, you know, that's how a cinema verite it was. And I loved yeah. it. Uh, I think a show like that actually would do amazing on TV now, but I don't know that they'll pick it back up or revisit it. We'll see. And so when HBO comes to you with like a deal like that, do they pay you to come to work on it with them? Well, like, yeah, they, they have to. They have to, you know, um, get the rights for your show and um, they have to pay you to write. And yeah, they, they, they have to pay you. <laughs> they have to do a deal. And, and they did. And, you know, you work on it. And then you the thing with HBO is they really only they only produce so many shows at a time. There a lot of networks will produce a lot of pilots and then kind of choose from those pilots which ones go forward. HBO doesn't really do that. They really try to just only create a few and those are usually the winners <laughs> that go right. forward. You know, they're they're not just like, let's just shoot a bunch and see what happens. So it's very intentional and it's a very small uh, circle of shows. Um, at least that's how they used to run the house there. But it was very exciting for us, of course, but also something to look back on in terms of the difference between being independent and not how when a major network like that comes to you, everything changes. You're not going to be able to do things the same way that you were before. Everything slows down because you now you have to go through all of these different channels. And though it's a great opportunity and an amazing thing, you're, you're also kind of leaving your audience until you can redo the show sure. <laughs> for that yeah, network. You can't keep making web series and also write a TV series at the same time. And we kind of, and we were, because yeah. our yeah. show had, our company and the other shows we were doing had to keep going while we were trying to also, so it was interesting to right. kind of live in both worlds in that way and learn about the other side. But yeah, that was uh, one, one of the things that happened. It's interesting. I feel like I have a few different friends that had like production companies that were doing stuff and making a lot of their own things and comedy and sketches and episodic stuff and then they got one big deal and they were like we're putting everything else on hold we got a pilot yeah, for yeah. NBC yeah. or VH1 or whatever and then they put all their eggs in there spend like a year on it and they're like yeah we're not picking it up and they're like yeah oh, that's rough that's we, rough and yeah. that's one of the maddening things right is that And again, speaking to what you were saying before about the digital space could have and can still be a space where you can go all the way with that. But 
when the big network comes to you, you're like, oh, this is more legitimate. Let me go over there, right, you right. know, and also because like you want to eat better and live better and, you know, expand your career and your life. But it's like, ah, uh, interesting. It's kind of like in other industries when people have a new invention or a new product and the bigger company comes and just gobbles that thing up, you know, um, or buys you out before you can even fully launch your thing all the way the way you wanted to. So you never really know. It's kind of like an aborted, (laughs) it's an aborted road. So that's something I think about a lot. Yeah. I I also wonder if it's even a tiny bit more complicated for you because, you know, it's your face in the show. You know, we were just talking about how like your audience has built a real meaningful relationship with you. And then, so, you know, it's not just like, oh, the the kind of like the corporate entity of black and sexy TV has decided to sell out, quote unquote. It's, you know, not that you ever did, but, you know, like, or decided to go corporate or go to TV. You know, there were those wonderful fans can sometimes feel really protective of the the franchises. There was a lot of that. And it was a conflict for me because I wanted to keep acting in in my show. (laughs) But of course I want to keep acting, acting on my show on HBO if I, if I can too, you know? So um, it was, it was rough. And then after that, working on the other, creating the other shows, I, I never starred in another show again because everyone knew me as that character and it felt so weird to put me in something else. So I was also really just missing acting and just missing, you know, being able to play in that way and, you know, uh, satisfy that part of my artistry. So it just took some time to kind of come back around to where I'm at now. But that's part of the process that you go through when... You say, yeah, we would like to develop something with HBO. It's going to be, it's going to take time, you know. Um, Although I was always kind of trying to get them to just take our series and just put it on TV. Just just put it on TV. I'm like, I promise if you do that, it'll be great. Yeah, yeah. Maybe spend some money on a soundtrack if you want. Yeah, (laughs) Yeah. maybe if you want to remix the audio. Yeah, Yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, if they had a, uh, you know, a a really, you know, daring executive or, you know, higher up team, they could have definitely done that. Um, And it would have been very interesting to see where that went. But that was not, they weren't feeling that daring about uh, doing it that way. Well, can I just dig in on one little detail before we move on to Jezebel from Black and Sexy TV, which is, so you had a show that was produced by Issa Rae, Rumi Lover Friends. And obviously she had a web series that turned into a TV show on HBO called Insecure. Was that, what was the timing like? Like, did she produce um, the show for you before or after Insecure? Uh, Before. So we kind of all were in the same circle. Uh, She was doing a really awesome web series called Awkward Black Girl on her YouTube channel while we were doing uh, The Couple and other series. And we had a series called Roomy Lover Friends that we had filmed, uh, but we had not put on YouTube yet. And she was in between seasons of Awkward Black Girl. So she 
asked us if she could put Rumi Lover Friends on her channel. Of no, course, we wanted, said yes. Her content. fan base was larger than ours at the time, and we wanted to collaborate. Um, and so that's how she ended up being a producer on the on the show. So it was something that we had already shot and wrote, and it was ready to go. But once we put it on her channel, and she put her name behind it, that expanded that audience. And it was good for her because she needed more content on her channel. So the same way that YouTubers will collaborate and go on each other's channel to boost each other. And, um, you know, it's a win-win for both sides. That's what we did with our web series. This was years before Awkward Black Girl was brought to HBO. So... Uh, Awkward Black Girl was brought to HBO and then through the development process, which took a couple of years. So she was going through the same thing, the long process. Um, it became insecure and it, you know, and it retained some of the essence of Awkward Black Girl, but it became its own thing. And do you think, was there any core, any relation to HBO finding Awkward Black Girl and then finding the couple? like Oh, of course. They're all uh, the executives. That it's their job to go out and find talent. They were all um, hearing about Black and Sexy TV and hearing about Awkward Black Girl. and Numa, you're making me so, I'm so nostalgic for that time. Yeah, right? <laughs> I actually really miss it. And it's like yeah. YouTube is still there. We could still be doing that. Yeah. Um, and so that's not something that I, that I take lightly. I think about it a lot and like, hmm, you know, I'm thinking about some things, you know. <laughs> well, so what's interesting to me, and it's a theme that I really kind of try to come back to on this show a lot because I think it's important for new filmmakers to realize that part of the perseverance to becoming like a working director is you did all this stuff for no money. You started a network. You started this, these shows with your friends. You were work, doing acting gigs and styling gigs and all these things to pay for these super low budget things. Then one of them turns into an HBO show, you know, in development. And you're you started a streaming network. You're you're paid. You're show running. You're writing. You're directing. You're acting. Trying to probably have you know, life outside of film too, maybe a tiny bit. And somehow amidst all of that, you decide to write what see. So I watched your movie Jezebel. I, I loved it on Netflix, but it seems like it's a very contained movie. Most of it takes place in two locations. It has a relatively small cast. It's, it's a drama and it seems like you probably were at this place where you're talking to HBO, you have all these things, huge cast access to a lot of equipment and cool things and locations, but you kind of decided to put all that stuff that was filling up your world on hold and focus on this really small, what seems personal movie, right? I think it's it, it, based on things from your own life, right? Yeah, it was a, it was a real process. Um, aside from starring in the couple and writing, show running, directing, you know, I was all every single day I was in some form, some form of production. So I was either in a writing room, in pre-production, on set, looking at an edit, uh, managing the release and the, the fans and the comments and, you know, social media of that every single day for years. Um, there were no breaks. There were was no vacation. Every Sunday that episode had to come out and I'm saying all of that. And there were people that were working even harder than me on the team that weren't sleeping, you know, to get these episodes out. Um, I was sleeping, <laughs> um, but I was working really hard and, and always in one of those stages of production. But I, I started to really want to make a feature film and really want to direct something 
um, personal to me that was a, a my signature and my story solely. It, it feels immediate or apparent to you too, right? You're like, oh, if, if you're shooting and cranking out all this content every day for years, 90 minutes? Are you kidding me? You know, that sounds that's like a exactly vacation. That's exactly how I felt yeah. about it. I said, I'm doing this every single day. Why am I not making a feature? And part of the reason I wasn't making a feature was because we had no breaks. You know, when was I going to have time to go make this feature? And is this feature going to be part of Black and Sexy TV? Or is it going to be this other thing? Will I be able to uh, work with some of the same cast and crew or will they be too busy you know um, being on set and on those shows it was really figuring out how to carve out just the time you know to be able to do that and still keep everything running and then we had a unprecedented uh, two-week hiatus where uh, one of um, we ended up having a sponsor um, the AIDS Healthcare Foundation uh, started sponsoring some of our shows and wanted us to go to South Africa uh, for two weeks for a big project that they were doing. And they wanted some of our stars and people to go to South Africa to be part of that. And we agreed to do it, which meant we were going to have two weeks off. (laughs) And so instead of going to South Africa, I said, I could make my film during this time. And again, I'm like, it's totally possible to make a feature film in two weeks because we're doing, we do this stuff every freaking day, you know? And so since we had the two week hiatus, I was, we, our equipment was freed up. Our crew was freed up so I could bring the DP who I liked working with most. I could bring, you know, people over because I'm like, I know it's supposed to be your two weeks off. Um, but I want to make this feature. Are you down? And none of us had made a feature film before. So everyone was so excited. And I said, we're also going to go to Las Vegas to do it. So it was just like a no brainer. <laughs> wait, wait, you are the be- living epitome of just shooting it. Right. Yeah. <laughs> that wait, wait, but so wait, can, can we back? I want to back up just to examine the thinking for a minute. Cause Matt and I disagree on this a lot. Matt, I, I think probably cause Matt went to film school and I didn't, but he feels like making a feature is like a really important part of, you know, being a film, a working filmmaker. And I feel like a lot of times, you know, and we people email us all the time and say like, I want to do this feature. I want to do this. And I'm not sure what I should do. I kind of feel like making a feature is, you know, you spend two years on it and it could very easily do absolutely nothing <laughs> for your career, you know? Sure. Um, but, but you don't have to explain to anyone, especially your parents, but like, you know, Hollywood, what a feature is. And then new, especially back then, people didn't even know what back web then, series were. When did, it wasn't back then. How many years ago? You made that feature like three years ago, right? Oh, I, I made my feature in 2017. Yeah. And it came out, came out last year. But, but but still, like, you, there's no stigma on a feature. You know what I mean? Digital content. I, still... I have to agree with you. Uh, you know, for uh, for all the work we were doing and for all the amazing fan base that we have, it was still kind of like no real respect. <laughs> yeah. Or yeah. Uh, if, you know. Well, but the HBO deal was respect. Like, I guess what made you say, instead of saying two weeks, let me take a break or two weeks, let me get make another show that I'll bring to HBO, you said... Like, how did you know that this is the movie you need to make? And then, oh, I knew, I knew for years. Um, and I had wrote part of it before I even launched Black and Sexy TV. So I always had this story 
um, of my true life story. I always knew I wanted to make it into a movie. I just didn't know how those pieces were going to come together because I didn't know how movies came together. I hadn't even made a short film when I had the idea that Jezebel should be a movie. Um, you know, I lived the life. I was the cam girl for like one to two years. I came to LA, I got into an acting class. There were directors in that acting class. Uh, we started making short films kind of within that school format. And I fell in love with directing and finally started understanding, oh, this is how movies actually come together because I only really knew the on-camera side of it. Um, so then I started making short films, started doing black and sexy TV, but all the while in the back of my head, I'm like, I want to make a feature one day. And, and I saw people like Barry Jenkins, you know, who you mentioned earlier, it's like, we came up with him. You know, uh, we were, um, when he was at South by, we were at Sundance with our movie. He was at South by with his first feature. We were at Sundance with a good day to be black and sexy, which is the base of black and sexy TV. And I just saw how not only with him, but with some of my other peers, that once they made their feature film, that did change the trajectory of their career. So as much as I love everything that I was doing, I knew that for me, it would be a turning point. And I think that that's just a very kind of individual way of looking at it. But And maybe I created that reality for myself, but I always knew that and felt strongly that when I make my feature film, it will be apparent, very apparent to people where my sensibilities lie, what control I have over my craft, what this story is. You know, a feature is different <laughs> than short form. And was there something in like the topic that making it a movie about a slice of your own life that you felt confident was the right move as opposed to making like a horror film or a comedy which you had just done so much comedy and but yeah you know, no i knew i knew that drama. it had to be jezebel because it's a story no one else could tell it's a story nobody else lived no like it was you couldn't make it up <laughs> if you tried you know like you could say oh i'm gonna make a i'm gonna make a movie about a black cam girl you know, but you would be missing out on so many details of the texture the whole, that you know. Yeah, yeah all yeah. the details, all the specifics I know about it, everything that was going on in the full world of my life, you know, not and it's just a period piece, which is puts a, a, a hint of genre into a drama, right? Yeah, a little bit. And I, I like that it that it, um, you know, I definitely like would call it a drama, but using. it kind of is on. It's a friend. I would call it a bit of a fringe, <laughs> bit of a fringe drama, you know, because you know it's you know, part erotic, part it mostly goes under the drama category. Can you give us the logline just for listeners that might? Oh listen? gosh, what do I say? What do I say about Jezebel? I can try to come up with a logline if you want. Yeah, no, you come up with a logline. <laughs> Usually, I do this, and then people are like, "No, that you didn't know what the movie." Was no, I want you to do it. Do um, it. So yeah, so it's about, it is about a black cam girl, but it's more about a girl living with her sister who is trying to find a way to make money and survive and, you know, write a purpose and a community in Las Vegas. Did you really live in Las Vegas? Mm -hmm. Yes. There, really there is lived some, there. there is like this real air of truth of what it's like to live in Las Vegas, but not be there as a tourist, you know, like the, the non-touristy side of Las Vegas. And she 
yeah, finds out that there's this opportunity to be a cam girl. You know, she goes and she goes on camera and people log in through their modems or whatever they did back in <laughs> their dial up, the baby. That dial up. <laughs> yeah. Usually men, right, are watching these girls on camera and they can't even hear them. They have to type to each other. And um, actually, I, one of the things that I find most entertaining about that movie is the technicalities of how you were a cam girl back then because it was there's a lot of tricks it's like if you move like this it looks like you're doing a certain sexual act that you're actually not really doing or if if i move the paddle like this it looks like i'm spanking you but really i'm like a foot away from you but from the camera angle it works and so there's all that fun of it's the, a funny like almost like a filmmaker yeah. trick right yes like, it's a movie yeah. magic and yeah, um, that's fun I didn't realize it at the time, but looking back, I'm like, oh, this is me as a very early filmmaker. It's where I learned about cameras. It's the first It's where I effect. learned about angles. I learned about lighting. Yeah. <laughs> um, and I learned about the digital space. I mean, this was, you know, the early, the early days of the internet. And I learned about how do you connect to someone how we're connecting right now, you know, and that's actually a skill set. That's actually, there's, a, there's um, talent to that, you know, being, being able to do that, you know, being able to, to connect and reach through the screen and pull through the screen. And all of that ended up, of course, I just would always laugh and say, of course, I ended up being part of a network called Black and Sexy TV. Of course, I ended up doing this, you know, because my very early influences and my first kind of discovery even about all kinds of things involved with sexuality and fantasies and what you might like and what you're repulsed by and you know what it means to connect to someone in such an intimate way and be vulnerable too all of that is a part of my filmmaking and part of my signature as an artist and it really all started all the way back then um yeah i just really I'm kind of in awe of that when I really think about it. Yeah, that's it's really it's a it's a perfect way to forge an independent filmmaker, right? Like you have this unique insight into humanity, right? And an understanding of how to connect pe- with people in a very intimate but again unique way. Then a boot camp of just like getting those 10,000 hours of like shooting, knowing what it's like to be in front of and behind the camera nonstop. And then it and then it feels totally approachable to go ahead and just bang out a movie real quick on your vacation. Yeah, no big I, deal. It really did. Even though um, I discovered in the making of it that oh, you know, making a feature is not like making a long short. <laughs> you know, right, you right. you know, your post production is going to be way longer. The control of your craft has to be sustained. In, in a much richer way. And I do feel that it's an elevated art form in that way because it's um, such a marathon. And I was definitely used to doing those quick sprints, you know, turn it around, put it out Sunday, turn it around, put it out Sunday, um, where you would make quicker decisions in a way and say, well, it's okay, you know, fix that real quick, cut, cut, boom, boom, put it out. Whereas your feature, you have to sit with that thing, (laughs) you know, even after you've shot everything that's in your script or everything you could shoot, then you have to really sit, sit just like with a short, but much more control over going through all of that footage and going, you know, really um, carving out your final product and 
that's I learned that in post. I was like, oh, this is not going to be a quick turnaround at all. I don't even know if I have a movie. I think I don't have a movie at all. I think I have something horrible, you know, and slowly, you know, getting it to that point. Can I ask, were there things that you wish you had done differently? You know, like, is there anything you would have told yourself at the top of the feature that you you know, to warn yourself about something? I wish, you know, I had been more organized about certain things. I wish I knew how much insurance was going to cost. In the actual filmmaking, I don't have any regrets. I don't. There were tough decisions that I had to make, but I'm very happy with all the choices that I made. But the things that I learned were, whoa, post-production will really take you down, you know, um, (laughs) you know, it's going to challenge you in so many ways um, to really see it through and and not quit. And um, I think other filmmaker friends of mine have expressed the same thing, that it was in the post-production and just the uncertainty of even knowing where your film is going to land. It's, It's really can be really trying. And that's something that I didn't expect because I always knew where all of my episodes were going to land. They're going to land on black and sexy TV on Sunday at seven, you know? And it's like, Oh, you know, you really are kind of walking through the dark in a way, even if you have your script and are super prepared, it's still a bit scary. Yeah. Can I ask, what do you wish you had organized better? on the business side. Can you tell that Matt just finished shooting a movie and is I did is just finish shooting. shooting. <laughs> oh, oh, okay. I'll help you. Yeah. So, um, and the listeners at home, and the like, listener, what, yeah. Yeah. What, what, what are they worried about? He's talking to all, all yeah. And it's funny because I knew this from black and sexy TV. I knew this, you know, you don't start anything without all of your paperwork in order, but for some reason there were just a couple you know, a couple of agreements that I just, you know, said, oh, we'll get to it later. It'll it's going to be OK. Right. You know, right. like right. we got to go. We got to make this thing. We have all the actors, so we're good, you know. But no, don't forget people. Don't forget anybody, you know, and don't think that it's just going to be OK because you've got a long way to go. Feelings change. Um, perception changes shit changes you know and just have it organized because when you do sell your movie um a distributor does come on board you're gonna have so much stress trying to deliver everything to them <laughs> that that's a whole other like pocket of post-production that's like such a headache and in the midst of being so excited that you have a distributor you're like oh but am i actually going to be able to meet their standards so that my film does air on netflix you know right. next month or whatever right. so um did you have to shoot in 4K for it to be a net, on Netflix or does that not matter? Yeah, we did. I don't know if that's their deliverable across the board. I can I can answer that actually. For their originals all have to be 4K, but acquisitions don't technically have to match oh, in 4K. Okay. There yeah, you go. You know they, there for you the go. Longest There's time. levels to this. There's levels. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you, run, yeah. you can't shoot a Netflix show on Alexa's because they only shoot 3.2K. And it's yeah, like, yeah. what? So the trick is... Be like Numa, have a festival hit, then get acquired. You can master however you want, but you still have all those deliverables that are, you know, pretty heavy duty, right? Yeah, still- and even just like having your film, you know, ready for closed captioning and all the, you know, th- those are things that you cannot do without. You know, um, you can't do. You know, you have to have your insurance going in, and then you have to have your insurance going out. 
And if you don't have the money for that and you didn't get the advance that you wanted to get, you're going to be scrambling to make that happen too. And it's not a thing that anyone's going to let you slide on, you know? So, um, you know, try to have your ducks in a row and not every like first time producer is going to be ready for all that. And you as the filmmaker, you're going to end up being your producer too. You have to carry that thing across the finish line. And so these were things that people told me too, (laughs) but you just don't (laughs) until you, until you really in it, and there's so much going on and you're also trying to just be an artist and and make the beautiful film that you want to make. The excitement of that can have you leaving things to the side. <laughs> Get your decks in order. But I know I'm saying that and first time filmmakers are still going to be stuff that you don't do. Hopefully your producer is more experienced than you are. Yeah. I know we're running a little short on time, but I just want to jump into the like kind of the you mentioned the art and the craft of the filmmaking a little bit um i remember when i did you know you were talked about how you had done so many web series and shorts and everything but a feature is just different i remember when i did my feature my first feature i had done also a bunch of web series and episodic things and shorts and you know viral videos and everything but when we were getting figuring out how to shoot this movie my dp the cinematographer says you know like so what's the cinematic language of this like how do we cover a scene like what's our approach and our strategy and i was like uh i was like not sure what he was talking about, you know? And there is, because you're saying the longevity of the movie, you have to kind of have an idea of how you're going to shoot the movie so that the first scene and the last scene feel like they're from the same movie. And what I think you did really well in your movie is now that I know that you shot it in two weeks and kind of on this very short break that you had and you had to travel your crew also, it seems like you turned your limitations into like artistic decisions, right? So I absolutely did, you know, and that's partly style and partly circumstance, you know, Um, but I was used to being able to do that. You have to turn things on a dime. If you lose a location, you, you might have to lose the scene. And if you lose the scene, how do you make that work for you? You know, there's a couple of scenes in my film, in my script that we didn't shoot because we didn't have the budget to find a hospital that I felt was going to actually feel like a real hospital and feel right. So I started debating with myself, do we need a hospital scene? And after long debate with myself about it, I said, no, we don't need a hospital scene. As a matter of fact, that's kind of exploiting my mother's death in a way. Uh, And it became a creative choice to leave that out. There is another scene that I wrote for a funeral. Again, we were having trouble finding the right location for that. And we had run out of money. And I said, do I need the funeral scene? (laughs) And I came to (laughs) the decision, don't need it. Going to the funeral all dressed in black is stronger than what I wrote, even though I loved that scene that I wrote and I hated to take it away from the actor who was going to perform it. But it was actually better to just see us silently in black on a bus that told the story more. And my roots as a short filmmaker um, have always been nonlinear in the experimental space. And I really wanted to find a way to add that to Jezebel. I didn't want to just make a film that There was no way it was going to feel like every other coming of age, but a lot of coming of age stories have a funeral, a death of a parent, um, a hospital scene. So I I ended up being really okay with letting that go. And it feels like it 
it continues the thread of my work, which is to not show and say everything, to exercise restraint in a lot of ways. So, but those decisions were motivated by lack of budget, <laughs> you know, lack of time. Um, and then I, I quickly was able to spin that into a creative choice. Yeah, and that's, I think, the strength of like a really crafty, clever filmmaker is how do you take those limitations and turn them into advantages? Like you have this sequence of scenes, this one location where the cam girls are uh, waiting to be selected to for a camming session. And I think the way most people would have shot that scene is like they're looking at a monitor, you shoot coverage, you kind of shoot different angles, so you can cut it together, but the, you shot it all in one direction. And it felt very intentional and artistic, and I and it was a cool, cool way. Like even just the way you cover scenes, if like every time I'm in this location, I'm going to shoot it the same way. It starts becoming like a motif, you know. And so I, th I thought there was some cool things. And I know you know most of our listeners probably haven't seen the movie yet, and this is a kind of a specific question. But I did notice one thing, which I thought was kind of interesting that I wanted to ask you about is all of the scenes that take place in the apartment. I could be wrong about this, but it seemed like they were all shot from kind of like sitting level eye height as opposed to like the camera always seemed low. And I know people are sitting, but even when they're standing, the camera seemed to kind of be looking up at them. Was that like an intentional thing or just something I read into? Yeah, very intentional. I was very intentional with since we basically just had the two locations. So I wanted each location because that's how my life was. I had two locations in my life. It was that apartment, which we shot in the same apartment that I lived in. That's why it feels so real because that is where I was living uh, with my family. So me and my cinematographer, Brent Johnson, A, <laughs> uh, we had long talks about this. So everything in the apartment was always supposed to feel shadowy. It's very low ceilings in there anyhow. So you're not going to get, you know, this high angle shot. And I didn't want it. I wanted it to be down low because that's how we were. We were depressed and down low and just wanted the camera to be on our level. You know, we were often, you know, sitting and either on the bed or the couch, the two pieces of furniture there. You know, you didn't have, you know, these <laughs> views or anything like that. The curtains were always completely pulled. You weren't looking outside onto any terrace or anything like that. You know, it's a very was a very closed in space and a dark, shadowy space. So the palette of that was very different than the chat rooms. And the idea there was, again, to stay low, stay intimate, and let the sh work with the shadows. You know, we never tried to blow out any shadow. We always tried to keep the real shadows falling where they were falling. And then when we go to the chat room scene, I wanted everything there to be garish and fluorescent and, you know, the, the colors that women think are women's colors, you know, the purples and the pinks and, you know, to, to really have that trashy, cheap, you know, we just rented this office last week and we're throwing these girls in here, you know, um, that skeeviness, that underbelly of Las Vegas and, for me, coverage is something I don't like anyhow. Um, I would get in trouble when I would direct things um, at Black and Sexy. It's like, you didn't get enough coverage of this or that. And I'm like, we didn't need it. You know, it's always like <laughs> a little bit of a fight. In the first few episodes that I ever directed, um, I just, in my short film work, I just didn't do coverage. I just shot what I wanted to see. So I was trying to translate that for our version of TV, right? And then in the film, 
I wanted everything to feel like you are actually watching. You are uh, behind your computer watching these girls. So you're not going to get all those angles. You're just going to get the one angle that also saved us a lot of time. So you I'm very impatient when I shoot. I don't want to shoot the scene 10 times to get 10 different angles. And I, I'm only going to use maybe three in the cut. I don't like a lot of cuts. So if I don't shoot a lot of footage, we're not going to get a lot of cuts. <laughs> so a lot of it was like all very efficient, very economic, but also just style and patience, you know, of we don't need to see all that. And sometimes I would have to kind of meet in the middle because my cinematographer is like, no, you're definitely going to need that. And I'm like, no, I'm pretty sure, confident that I don't need to see the other side or at all, you know, but I would give it to him, you know, sometimes and sometimes he was right and I did end up using it. But sometimes I knew and I followed through with it in the edit. I'm not going to use that. I'm just getting it because my actor feels they need it. My cinematographer is going to go crazy if I don't get it, you know, um, but I knew in my head, I, I already know I'm not going to use that, you know, so it's, I think, a combination of all those things. It's almost like survival filmmaking um, has become a style <laughs> for me. So Wow. And then you got into South by. Yeah, we sure did. <laughs> and is that how the Ava DuVernay Array deal came to be? Did she find it at South by? No, um, but we sent it to her company. We sent it to the team there and they reviewed it and loved it. And it's a team of black women there who get it, you know, and um, they really, you know, wrap their whole arms around a project when they love it. And so that's what they did. But with South by, it was interesting because I submitted the film. We filmed in July of 2017 and I was racing to make, you know, all the major deadlines. So, you know, Sundance deadline is September. Um, I was like, we're not going to make a Sundance deadline. We're not going to make a Sundance deadline. That's insane, you know. Um, and it's a South by deadline is in November. That was still insane. But I still submitted what we had, which was not a film. Um, it was an assembly, a two hour assembly of like scenes. <laughs> And so, of course, it didn't get in, you know, for 2018, but I still had the audacity to be upset, you know, about that. But I, ha I needed to keep working on the film. The film wasn't done. So um, it went from that two hours and something to the 88 minutes that it is now. And it got in the next year. That's great, though, because I feel like it would be easy to lose heart lose confidence, right? And and just imagine, well, I blew my shot with them. You know, we'll we'll try for a different festival, right? How did it feel to get accepted that time around? I couldn't believe it. I couldn't believe it. And because there have been so many no's <laughs> in different ways, not just from festivals, from like, oh, well, maybe I should just try to just take this out to a distributor now. We'll skip the festivals. We could do that. Like, no, that wasn't working. I was like, shit. You, you know, as a filmmaker, you feel all this pressure to deliver good news to your team because it's everyone's first, everyone's starry-eyed and it's your first thing and everyone wants it to go well and everyone wants to have that success story. So I spent, it was a year of depression while being in post and hiding 
I, re- I really wouldn't go to certain things where I thought I would run into cast or crew because I just didn't, I just couldn't <laughs> talk about the movie. I couldn't <laughs> talk about where I thought it was. Ooh, what do you, you know, you just, everyone's looking at you like you're the sure. ticket, you What's know? What's the news? Yeah. Numa, how's it going? I'm telling yeah, you yeah. for a year, I avoided every single person that I could avoid. And when I finally had to see some of them, I was just like, try to make myself as small as possible. <laughs> so I just please don't ask me about the movie. We're still working, you know? Um, So when I got the email from them, I was in shock. Just remembering it, I just feel the shock again. I started pacing. I was alone. I started pacing around my desk and I said, this isn't real. This isn't real. This isn't real. I must have said, this isn't real like 50 times and then sat down and looked at the email again like yeah that's oh, a good oh my that's, god that's a good oh my image. god you know just the relief was <sighs> that image of you pacing around your desk saying this isn't real this isn't real is a good image for people to remember because i feel like if you wrote that into like a movie scene where something amazing happens to a character and they pace around their desk saying this isn't real over and over people would be like that nah that people would never do that but then they, they do do that. So. Yeah, oh, I definitely did that. And then I, you know, I called our lead actress, Tiffany Tennille, and we cried on FaceTime together. It was just so much buildup and such. And we knew that going to a festival, because we were ready. We were, we were like, once we get in, wherever we're going, we're going to milk that shit and we're going to blow this movie out. Did you get a publicist? I did. I did. Um, we had been kind of our own publicist along the way. I was always promoting the film, uh, but I definitely brought someone on to do the things that that I couldn't do, you know, and they made sure that we got our review in The Hollywood Reporter. I didn't, because I didn't know anyone there, but I was definitely getting a lot of buzz going. So it was a good collaboration, but I would definitely advise to get a publicist when you go, because they'll do all the follow-up for you and all the extra reach out and um, it's money well spent. Yeah. And it's, I think, the other thing you just said that's important to know is it is a team job between you and the publicist. It's not like they're going to do everything because they don't know your project nearly as well as you do. They're going to amplify your work. You should already be your own publicist when you start making your film. And then uh, you sold the movie and got to direct your first TV episode, right? Like Queen Sugar was your first kind of big TV Gig, right? Yeah, well, it was really awesome because Ava DuVernay uh, pays attention. She pays attention to black women filmmakers and women filmmakers across the board. And when you step forward and make a feature film, you may be fortunate enough to get an invitation to come direct on Queen Sugar. So she actually reached out to me on Twitter. She slid in my wow. DMs. It wasn't totally cold because I've um, known Ava over the years. Um, but I hadn't seen her in a very long time, not since, you know, all of her huge uh, milestones and accomplishments. I hadn't seen her in many years. Um, but, you know, she was a- aware of Black and Sexy TV, definitely aware of my work, um, had tweeted out m- one of my fundraisers for Jezebel early on. So she was tracking the film and keeping up with what I was doing. And yeah, there was a lot of buzz around the film. She slid in the DM. She invited me to Queen Sugar. I cried again. Yeah. <laughs> it's like two two big crying moments was South by and um, when Ava invited me to direct Queen Sugar, uh, and I pretty much went from the festival 
to New Orleans to go direct. It was back to back. Wow. So okay. I was like and were on you fire. <laughs> were you nervous about doing like a big, it's a Hulu show, right? Queen Sugar? It's Oprah Winfrey Network. So it's uh, on uh, OWN. I've seen it on Hulu. Oh, it's oh. also on, it's licensed on Hulu now. So you can catch up with it there too. Um, oh yeah, of course I was nervous, but I was, my excitement was bigger than me being nervous. And I was able to shadow uh, the director before me. So the biggest part of that was really learning how to prep for TV, which is very different than <laughs> the way I had prepped for anything in my life, you know? So um, I really paid attention to that part in the shadowing that I did. And because I felt pretty good, like one, well, once I'm on set, I'm good. Cause I've been on set almost every day for eight years, you know? <laughs> so um, it's just a bigger set, more people, but how you prep and how you communicate with that team of a hundred plus people is really what makes or breaks you as a TV director. And um, I think, yeah, when you shadow, that's what you got to pay attention to. But also the past eight years, you're kind of the boss and now you're like the guest on someone else's show. It's probably- You're the guest and the boss at the same time. Yeah. I and mean, it's just, you're kind of like, yeah, hey, I'm here. Cause I remember my first day, my first shooting day, first scene up, I had to make a decision as a director that would was a decision I would have easily made at Black and Sexy TV about how we were gonna shoot the first scene. And in TV, you do a lot more rehearsal with your actors before you shoot. In the web series, <laughs> Land, yeah. you shoot, shoot the rehearsal. rehearsal. Like, shoot rehearsal, yeah. <laughs> you don't oh, rehearse, yeah. you shoot, you know? Yeah. And so, <laughs> yeah. but you can't just take people's rehearsal away from them. So you have to figure that thing out. Um, and we had a cast member who wasn't ready. And I knew on my first day, my number one thing besides, you know, doing the best job I could do was to make my day, to not go over, not even a second over our, the 12 hours. So I already knew going in. So I'm like, hmm, the actor is not here, but we're ready. And when the actor gets here, they're gonna wanna rehearse. Hmm, we're not rehearsing, <laughs> you know? It, I was just like, um, we're not, yeah, like we're not gonna have time to like, we're literally not gonna have time. Thankfully, I knew that actor. I had met the actor before we had a good rapport. So when they showed up on set, I let them know right away, hey, you're gonna go over this like super quick. It's not gonna be a rehearsal rehearsal like what you're used to, we need to shoot. Like I need you to just like sit right there and we're gonna shoot. So just review it real quick and let's go. And it was a moment, <laughs> uh, the actor was fine with it, but the team was like, what, what, what's going on? And I'm like, trust me, like the, we, we have to do it this way. And the actor was also okay, not just because we knew each other, but because they took so long to get to set that they were, you know, they were okay. Yeah, you know, they, kind so of on I, I had a like little the, bit of leverage. Yeah, yeah. Um, but at the end of the day, when we finished five minutes early, Everyone was high-fiving me and it was like, yeah, and yeah, it just, yeah, yeah. It, it was, after that, they trusted me. But the fact that I had to do that on the first scene was like, Boy. ooh, yeah. like, they're really going to think I'm trying to be in here, like, changing up shit. I'm not. I'm I'm trying to make our day. I I'm really want everyone to get out of here on time. Um, and then I lived up to that. It was like, chef's kiss. <laughs> 
And did you shoot coverage? Uh, yeah, we, you have to shoot your coverage. I was always trying to get out of it. I was like, but do we really need that? And our cinematographer is like, yes. Yeah. We always get that <laughs> shot. We're going to get it. There was one scene where I did not shoot coverage and everyone was upset with me about it. Like even later, they were still like upset. But it was, I don't regret it at all because it was the perfect we, it was the last thing of the last scene we were shooting that day. And it was another thing where we were going to go over. So I just made a decision. We're just going to shoot it here and here. We're not going to shoot it here, 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 here and here, right, you know, right. and um, it, it was fine. It's a, one of my favorite moments <laughs> um, awesome. in that episode. Uh, but yeah, that there was tension with that, you know, um, you have to be able to navigate that. So you are their guest, absolutely. And you have to respect everyone. I'm coming in on the fourth season and I give them all the respect, but they're also not gonna respect you if you don't take control and make your days. So that's the tension. Yeah, there you go. Was that your, did you get into the DGA on off of that game? I did, I joined um, after that. So I'm a member, I'm in the old boys club now. <laughs> Nice. And now you you have a feature with Gabrielle Union for Netflix. This next up Boom. if this pandemic ever ends. Exactly. We're hoping to shoot uh, early next year. But again, we're just kind of rolling with the punches. Um, but that definitely came out of doing a feature because it didn't come out of doing the web series. <laughs> you know, it's just that people sit up a little a little taller when you've done a feature and they're like, oh, we might be able to trust this woman uh, with something. So um, it seems kind of like it's triangulated, right? You did a feature. You played South by Ava's on your side. She asked you to do Queen Sugar. They're happy with that. Your DGA. Plus, you've had some history with HBO. Like, you know, some people in town. And then who comes first, you or Gabrielle Union on this feature? Uh, Gabrielle Union came first, so uh, she was already attached to the project. It's, it's based on a book, and um, she's producing now as well. So um, I think her team found the book, an option. I'm not sure exactly how that all came together, but there was already a script uh, based on that book. She was already attached. So I got the script. I liked it. And this is through, like, in, in, uh, by this point, I'm assuming you have, like, a pretty good agent and manager and stuff, right? Uh, since the Black and Sexy TV days, uh, UTA was representing the company. So, um, you know, any moves that we were trying to make as, as a company with our shows, I, I was already represented at UTA, but I deepened that relationship by having my own agent for acting. And then they, re I didn't make Jezebel with any of them knowing about it. I just went and did it the same way we were always doing the web series. And then when it was done, I told them um, <laughs> because I had a manager at the time that didn't think it was a good idea and I ended up letting him go. But it kind of made me gun shy to talk to my agents about it. And so I just did it. And then when it was done, I brought it to them. And so now I'm represented like I have all these agents <laughs> because of the, they're like, oh, we didn't know that you could do all of these things. Um, so everything changed. But that's such a good thing to prove both of your points, Matt and Numa, of like you running this company for eight years. You've done all this stuff. You get this HBO deal. You are starring, you're writing, you're creating, you're show running. 
And they still don't realize that you could do all this stuff until you get, until Ava DuVernay is like, this is a good movie. Or Yeah, because it's not reaching them in that way. You know, um, even if we had hundreds of thousands of fans, which we did and do, it's they're not in that fan group, you know, so they don't know the impact that you're making until it reaches their circles, which is a totally different circle. So, yeah, it is triangle, you know, it, the triangulation is happening. Um, but everything, every opportunity that I have is because I made something of my own. There's not one opportunity that isn't isn't that or directly related to that. And once I clicked into, oh, well, that's just my path. That's my path. You know, everything that I do is that's that's just me, you know. Um, so I didn't worry too much about it. But it was pretty amazing to see, you know, the team of agents like swarm down. <laughs> yeah, now you've got a boardroom of people. Yeah. I have a team, you know, like yeah. I never had a team team before. And so now I have this team and that team, they're always looking out for me things. So that's how the script for Perfect Find came that Gabrielle Union was already attached to. And then it's up to me to go prove myself, you know, I'm the one to do it. And that was a series of meetings and me letting them know my take on it, like how, how what I plan to do with it. I ended up doing a rewrite on the script as well. Um, and then everyone's really happy with it. So we're making a movie now. Wow. <laughs> and um, it's really awesome. But I remember in one of the final meetings, they asked me how I was going to handle the jump from doing such a lo-fi thing to not a map it's not a massive budget but it's <laughs> a lot you know <laughs> yeah. yeah it's a lot of figures um and that was kind of a question that I wasn't expecting but I felt I answered well and maybe sealed the deal for me getting the job uh, which is just basically that it's the same thing with more zeros you're still no film ever feels like they have enough money, right. you know? So right. even if you this is, you know, a $20 million film, you're still fighting for what you want to be able to shoot everything that's on your pages and get everybody you want in the way that you want. It's the same thing. <laughs> but yeah, that's that's been the path. Yeah. Well, Numa, you'll have to come back when your next movie is out. Yeah. I, I will. It's, yeah. it's exciting to hear. And it's um, that question is like, I still haven't figured out if it's a valid question or not because some of the best work I've seen is from people who have been making their own art forever and then got a lot of money to make to take a leap, you know. And and a lot I was of offended by the question when it was asked. You were offended, you know, and because I was in the meeting and it wasn't a green light yet and they're still assessing me, I had to really think on my toes, you know, and and answer, you know, and maybe I was also being tested with like, is this when, you know, her anger or whatever is going to come out? You know, I had to hold my ground. But inside I was feeling like, why? Like, don't ask me that, you know. Um, but I can see more than one side of it. But it was definitely something that came up. <laughs> I would bet that that person hasn't ever made a film themselves. <laughs> the person that asked the question. <laughs> the person that asked the question. 
Yeah, you know what I mean? Probably. Like you, you like know. no comment. I cannot yeah. speak any further on this. Hey, yeah. listen, I don't want to put words in your mouth. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I'm sure that person is very first. nice. But but as filmmakers, we know that like, you know, as things scale up, yes, they become more complicated in some ways and they become easier in other ways, you know? And and those skills were always gonna transfer, right? It's so true. And on Queen Sugar one of the producers there told me they would much rather have an indie filmmaker come work on the show than because we know how to roll with the punches because actually and TV is closer to indie filmmaking than you would think because you're losing locations and you have such a short time to turn the thing around. It was the closest thing to what I had already been doing, just a much bigger budget, a lot more, you know, instead of, you know, six people on set, you've got 60, 70, 80, 100 people, you know, but it's this, it was the same thing, you know, which, why, which is why I wasn't that nervous because I knew what I was doing there. Cool. Well, awesome. Awesome. Well, we're excited. Is there, do you have like a personal social media presence that people can follow to see, like keep up with your stuff? Yes. Everything is at Miss Numa. So um, M-I-S-S-N-U-M-A, that's Twitter and Instagram. If you're on Facebook, um, just search my name, Numa Perrier, and my page will pop up. But I'm most active on Instagram and Twitter. Um, Pretty responsive. So reach out to me. Uh, I love hearing about your thoughts on the movie, good or bad. Hashtag Jezebel movie. Go watch Jezebel on Netflix. <laughs> cool. And I want to give a shout out to Lena Green also, who introduced us to you. Yes. Who thank also you, listens Lena. to the podcast yes. and is a and filmmaker. And Lena Green, and fabulous actress and filmmaker. So, and Aww. great friend. Well, are you cool with uh, hanging out with us just for a couple more minutes for an unpaid endorsement? Oh, yeah. I have something for that. Mm-hmm. Unpaid endorsements. So my endorsement is a a YouTube video called The Secrets to Creating an Indie Game Franchise. It's a keynote speech from uh, the Game Developers Conference from, I think, 2018. So the Game Developers Conference is like, you know, the big video game uh like convention basically so anybody who's in that business they all get together and there's keynote speakers and they you know they roll out all sorts of stuff it's not like a trade show it's not like e3 or something like that that's not like hey the new you know call of duty game is out it's like really nerdy it's about like game theory and stuff and that specific panel talks a ton about the really the ways in which you can engage an audience uh, through your traditional storytelling, but also through meaningful kind of like extra transmedia ways of talking to people, whether that's Twitter or maybe that's a comic book or, you know, that all, all of the different philosophies behind that and not just making it marketing, but making it meaningful on how to follow through on the promise of your content. And I thought, this is just such an incredible speech for independent filmmakers who are looking to connect with their audience. I was like, oh, this is great. What's it called again? It is called The Secrets to Creating an Indie Game Franchise. It's so nice when you see like a speech or a podcast or something like that that is directly applicable to filmmaking but isn't actually about filmmaking it's just like, ah, oh, it just blows your mind. So that's my, uh, that's my endorsement. <laughs> Good endorsement. That. Thanks. Numa, what you got? Well, off of what you said, just today, um, there was a, a whole, uh, David Fincher started 
trending with this photograph of uh, Jared Leto uh, and his hair and cornrows. And apparently uh, Mr. David did the cornrows himself, which uh, had a black Twitter in particular and film Twitter and the cross section of black film Twitter up in an uproar. And going down the rabbit hole of that, I discovered that on Gone Girl, the director's commentary, apparently he's ripping Ben Affleck to shreds about not wanting to wear a Yankees hat. (laughs) And that production was shut down for several days over this. And there were negotiations that were going down. I said, is this a joke? But no, it's real. So apparently everyone needs to go back and watch Gone Girl with the commentary to get all the gossip, all all the tea (laughs) spilt on um, the tense working relationship. (laughs) You know, he was calling him unprofessional. He said, you know, um, this character, I I want him to wear this hat. And there there was just a a whole days of negotiations around what he would wear um, on his head as the character. (laughs) That's, is it, was it that he was just, is he a Sox fan? Is that what it is? Yeah, he's he's a a Boston Boston boy. So, you know, that runs deep in the blood, apparently. I guess it does. Um, Even when you're playing a character who is not you, sir, (laughs) um, and being, you know, paid very handsomely to do so, and your director is telling you to do so, okay. So I just found that to be very fascinating. And now I've just got to watch that film with the commentary just to apparently that's not the only story throughout this commentary and so there's a thread on twitter people are talking about how he just kept keeps ripping him to shreds on there and i'm like oh my god this is crazy that sounds pretty good also ben affleck's a director himself like imagine if someone on argo was like "Mm, i don't think my character would wear this tie yeah yeah and gone girl is after he was playing argo wasn't he yeah, that's true. <laughs> that is crazy. No shade, Ben. Uh, rooting for you, but definitely gonna watch uh, Gone Girl again with those goggles on. Yeah. So, David Fincher. I don't think there can be the stuff he does for you. Hear about him doing is like no one else could do that nowadays because no one gets pieces. away with it. Yeah. yeah. And do you know that House and Gone Girl like. It's all on a stage with it's all green screen, all the windows. And it's like the visual effects that they did to just show like the driveway out front. It's like if if you look up VFX breakdown for Gone Girl, it's like every shot is a VFX shot. And it looks like it's just a bitch. I did not know that. See, now I actually really love that film. I'm going to watch it again. I'm going to, but I never heard the commentary. And um, never thought that, always thought mostly about that story and had a lot of conversations around the story, but never really thought about the filmmaking of that film that much. So um, definitely going to revisit. Well, I have two things. They're both very short. Uh, one, this is, uh, I just cannot stop talking about how I switched from Mac to PC recently. And tens and thousands of other creative people that are doing graphics and 3D graphics and visual effects are doing it because... Apple is uh, a horrible company in terms of like the relationships that they make with uh, other people in the tech space, I think. Um, but Mac OS is like amazing and Windows 10 sucks. And so 
I finally figured out how to reprogram my whole keyboard so that my control key and my Apple, like my alt key and all those keys are in the right place. And so I use this program called Sharp Keys. If you're trying to switch from Apple to PC, then check it out. My other thing is, and I suspect, Matt, you will know the answer to this. I was shocked. Uh, My wife made buffalo sauce yesterday. Do you have any Mm -hmm. idea what that stuff is made out of? Vinegar and tomato paste? It is butter and Frank's hot sauce. (laughs) Oh. Oh. So I always wondered um, how it was made, too. Here's, the, here's the recipe. 16 tablespoons of unsalted butter, two teaspoons of garlic powder, and one and a third cups of hot sauce, like Frank's or Crystal or something. Gotcha. gotcha. But it's like... Huh, but how do they what? get it to kind of have just been... that consistency? Because the consistency is not... And now we can do a cooking podcast, but yeah, yeah, the consistency <laughs> is not a buttery consistency. It's more light and liquid and fluid than that. Yeah. I never yeah. thought of it. It's the hot sauce because the hot sauce is really watery, but there is a thickness to buffalo sauce. So I actually um, fried a bunch of chicken in the hot sauce, in the in that homemade buffalo sauce, and it is amazing. If you like spicy stuff, it's really good. Well, if you guys have any questions for Numa, uh, obviously you can find her on social media, but you can also email us and we can pass it forward. Our email address is just shootitpod at gmail.com. If you have any comments, thoughts, email us or call us at 1262-SHOOT1 and leave us a voicemail. I'm on Twitter at SmiteyPileg, on Instagram at OKaplan. And I'm across all social media at Mr. Matt Enlow. This episode is edited by Sarah Weirda. Our webmaster is Yuman Williams, and you're listening to music provided by the Free Music Archive and the artist Jazar. Thanks, Thanks everyone. everyone. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.